0: Father, I ask and pray that you would um, take the uh, meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth and um, use them for your your purposes. Uh, if I speak anything in error, I pray that, as always, it would fall on deaf ears. And I pray that, but I pray that your truth uh, would go forth to accomplish your purposes in the hearts and lives of your people that you love so dearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this this morning is... Uh, a study on the book of Lamentations. It's, it's a book of sorrow. It's a book of suffering. And uh, we don't like that. We want to be cheerful. We're Americans. We want to be happy. We can buy happiness and we try really hard to do that and we don't like sorrow and we do everything we can to avoid it. But it's, it's fitting and appropriate that we study the book of Lamentations because no matter how hard we try, suffering does come to us sooner or later. No matter how hard we try, whether you're a Christian, a non-Christian, it doesn't matter. To be human is to suffer sooner or later. The book of Lamentations is believed to have been written by the prophet Jeremiah. And it's masterfully crafted acrostic poem. In the Hebrew, it's an acrostic poem, five chapters long. Let me encourage you right now to to find a Bible. Grab a Bible real quick. And if you don't have one with you, uh, you you should be able to find one in the pew. And if you don't have one in front of you, tap the person in front of you and make them give you their Bible. Okay. Chapter, there are five chapters in the book. The first two chapters, uh, Lamentations, by the way, I, I'd give you a page number, but you all have different page numbers. So, But if you just took your Bible and you opened it up to about the middle, Lamentations will be just to the uh, right of center. And it's right after the book Jeremiah, which is a pretty large book, tucked right after Jeremiah, and between Ezekiel and Jeremiah is the small book of Lamentations. Jeremiah, of course, was written by Jeremiah, and Lamentations was also written by Jeremiah. For chapters one and two. If you just look at chapter one, how many verses do you see in the chapter? And you just look at that last, that last verse of the chapter. How many? What, what, what chapter number is that? It's not a trick question. 22, right? Turn to chapter 2. How many uh, verses do you see in chapter 2? 22. Go to chapter 4. How many verses do you see in chapter 4? 22. Chapter 5? 22. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so in the Hebrew... Each of those verses starts alphabetically. So Aleph, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, starts off the first verse, and Beth, the second verse, and so on, alphabetically. A through Z, or the Hebrew form of that for those those chapters. But in chapter 3, turn to that. What's the last verse there? 66. So 3 times 22 is 66. So chapter 3 is divided into... Three verses, each starting with A, and three verses each starting with B, and then three verse, verses each starting with C, and so on. So it's, it's a very masterfully crafted acrostic poem. But lamentations is taken from a Greek word which means to cry aloud, to mourn, to wail, and to weep. The unthinkable has happened. "...Jerusalem has been conquered by the armies of Babylon and now lays in ruins." How could this be? God, Yahweh, was the greatest God. All other gods were false gods. The Israelites were God's chosen people. They were invincible. How could God let such a thing to happen to His own chosen people? After all, Yahweh sat on His throne in heaven. And the Bible tells us that His holy temple on Mount Zion was His footstool. The temple in Jerusalem was considered to be the footstool of God Himself. Yahweh was omnipotent the all-powerful Creator of heaven and earth, He was invincible. Noah, all the other gods were false gods. If they existed at all, they were weak and inferior in the eyes of the Israelites. If the temple in Jerusalem was God's footstool, surely it too was invincible. If you turn to Lamentations chapter 4, verse 12, Jeremiah expresses just that, that mindset that was held by the people of Israel in his day. Not only by his people, but it had become the belief of the surrounding nations as well. Listen to what he says in chapter, chapter 4, verse 12. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the world's people, that the enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was invincible. The thinking of Jeremiah's day was that Jerusalem could, not only be, uh, could only be conquered if the God or gods of another nation were greater than Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But since Yahweh was the greatest God, that could not possibly happen. How could Jer- Jerusalem be conquered by a nation that worshipped gods much weaker than Yahweh? It was unthinkable, and yet it happened. Where there was once laughter, there is only the sound of weeping. Where there was once joy, there is now only the sound—or there is only sorrow. A city once beautiful, the envy of the nations, is a desolate place filled with the stench of death and disease. And Solomon's great temple has been utterly destroyed, and where sacrifices and worship were once offered to Yahweh, jackals roam freely. And so we come to the book of Jeremiah's Lamentations. The book opens with a picture of Jeremiah walking through the ruins of Jerusalem in deep personal pain, weeping for his people. Turn to chapter 1, verse 1. The first, the first verse in the book. Listen to, listen to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. As he speaks, how deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. In the opening verses of chapter 3, which I want to focus on today, Jeremiah Reveals his intense suffering. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, He shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, He dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew His bow and made me the target for His arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from His quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I hoped for from the Lord. Happy Fourth of July. <laughs> this passage of scripture, scripture teaches us that living a godly life does not guarantee a life free from pain or suffering. Sooner or later, pain comes to all of us. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Jeremiah was one of the greatest prophets of Israel. He had heard the voice of the Lord single him out and call him by name to do the work of God. And if ever anyone should have had a Pollyanna existence for the privilege of talking to God Himself, it should have been Jeremiah. Yet listen to the bullet list from the passage we just read. Affliction darkness skin and flesh grow old bitterness and hardship weighed me down pierced my heart lapping stock broken my teeth with gravel jeremiah is suffering on every level this isn't just a poem this is his world he's suffering physically emotionally relationally and spiritually he's lost everything His hopes and dreams are shattered. He's been called by God Himself and yet Jeremiah's pain is so deep that it feels like this very same God is the one afflicting him. Perhaps you've experienced life so painful that it felt like even God Himself had turned against you. That's how it feels sometimes. If you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. I I think... Just about everyone experiences that sooner sooner or later, and it's during those times of suffering that we ask the big why questions like Jeremiah did, "Why God, why me? Why now? Why not him? Why not her? What have I done wrong? We ask the questions, but the pain just goes on, and in Jeremiah's case, his suffering was due to no fault of his own. He didn't do anything wrong. He was following God obediently and faithfully, and yet because God's people, God's people, had turned their backs on God and disobeyed Him, Jeremiah suffered the consequences of their sin right along with him with them. When Jerusalem was under siege by the Babylonians, listen to this, turn to, uh, read this, turn to Jeremiah or Lamentations four, back to chapter four, verse 10. So great was the suffering and the starvation in Jerusalem. So desperate were the people. So scarce was the food. that Jeremiah writes these terrifying words. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. It doesn't get any worse than that. But not only did Jeremiah suffer along with the people of Jerusalem, he also suffered intense persecution because he faithfully proclaimed the word of God and preached against the sin of the people. Jeremiah had tried to warn Jerusalem and the tribes of Judah and Benjamin about their impending disaster. Not only did the rulers of Jerusalem disregard Jeremiah's prophecies and warnings, but chapters 37 and 38 of the book of Jeremiah describe in detail how they turned against him. They accused Jeremiah of treason. They beat him. They imprisoned him. And they dropped him into a cistern to die. A cistern was a pit commonly used to collect and store precious drinking water in a land that's hot and dry. But God did not abandon Jeremiah to die in a stinking cistern. When God first called Jeremiah to, to, to call Judah to repentance and warn Jerusalem of certain destruction if she did not repent, God made a promise to Jeremiah: "They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you, and I will rescue, rescue you," says the Lord. Jeremiah 1:19. And God made good on His promise. While Jeremiah suffered, at the same time God did indeed rescue him from that cistern and from that pit. But it didn't mean a life of ease without suffering or pain. Our time is short this morning. So I'm basically going to throw my notes away at this point and share a story with you. There was a young man by the name of Tony who Nancy Piercy in her book Total Truth writes about And I want to share his story with you because I think it powerfully addresses this issue of the suffering of why God perhaps lets godly men and godly women suffer for following Him in obedience. Tony lived in a Christian home whose father was extremely rigid, strict, and often cruel. Physical abuse was common, along with a constant torrent of verbal abuse. His father would tower over Tony as he would tremble. His father's face contorted in rage, for the smallest thing shouting what a stupid incompetent idiot Tony was as he punched him again and again by the time Tony reached high school he had decided to commit suicide my parents told me that I was bad and that a good Christian boy would obey them but I just couldn't meet their expectations and eventually I gave up trying my life was misery I could see no hope The only thing that stopped him short was the thought that God might be real and might send him to hell for killing himself. The only way I could see out of my misery was suicide, but I was scared of the possibility of hell. That fear fear was the only thing that stayed my hand. So Tony began to search out the question of God's existence, not with any hope of salvation, but only to methodically clear the deck in order to take his own life. I had to find out, is there a God? Not that I'd seen any evidence of his existence, but suicide gives no second chance. So before I killed myself, I had to be sure. One Sunday, a gaunt, shabby man with a strong, foreign accent appeared on the doorstep of the church where Tony, at the insistence of his parents, still begrudgingly attended. Tony showed him the way into the sanctuary, little knowing that this tall stranger had the key to the answers he was seeking. The man had good reason to look so haggard, for he had survived 14 years in that hell on earth Known as a communist prison camp in Romania. For what? For the crime of being a Lutheran pastor. On the minister's neck and head, Tony could see deep scars from the torture he had endured at the hands of his communist captors. The man's name was Richard Wurmbrand, and he had only recently been released from communist Romania the stories he related about communist persecution shocked Americans who at that time knew little about conditions behind the Iron Curtain. This was long before Alexander Solzhenitsyn smuggled out his massive gulag archipelago documenting the Soviet Union's extensive prison camp system. Later, Wurmbrandt would give a riveting testimony to a U.S. Senate subcommittee which was picked up by the media and reported across the country. As Tony listened to Wimbron's account of his years behind bars, a faint glow of hope flickered within him. Here was a man who had been beaten just as he had been, in fact, far worse. And who understood what it meant to endure pain so searing that you you don't want to live anymore? And yet he had come back from the edge of the abyss with a profound faith in God, a good God who loves us. Humanly speaking, he should have been full of fury at his captors who had treated him so unjustly, Tony told me. That I could understand, but instead he had responded to his captors in love. Here was something entirely alien to Tony's experience. This wasn't just a Sunday morning ritual. This was a life-giving power. He quickly recognized that it was the only power that could salvage his own damaged life. I already knew a person's natural reaction to unjust suffering, but... Here was something new, something that opened up an alternative to what I had experienced. And after that memorable Sunday, Tony began to read the Bible. And over time, he too discovered a faith strong enough to bring him back from the edge of the abyss. And after this experience of seeing the reality of Christ in a person's life, I slowly started growing in faith. Richard Wormbrand, shortly after his release from Romania, in fact within only a few weeks, was freed in 1965 when the Norwegian Lutheran Mission had paid a $10,000 ransom to the Romanian government to purchase his liberty. Shortly after, after that, he traveled to Norway where Nancy Piercy, the writer of this this story about Tony, met him. And she, too, was overwhelmed and blessed by him. And she continues with her story. My family was living in Oslo at the time, and on Wurmbrandt's first Sunday there, since he could not speak Norwegian, he decided to visit the American Lutheran Church, where we attended. And with hollow cheeks and sunken eyes, outfitted in second-hand clothing, Wormbrandt and his wife, who had also been imprisoned, stood out sharply from the well-heeled Western diplomats who made up most of the English-speaking congregation. Yet the couple radiated a strong personal magnetism that irresistibly drew attention. When they witnessed the sight of people worshiping freely and without fear of persecution, they broke down and wept uncontrollably. That did it. The pastor of the church turned the service over to Reverend Vormbrandt to tell his strange table tale of unspeakable persecution the most vivid picture that remains in my mind is of the tears running down his face when he visited the sunday school and saw children openly taught the word of god in romania that was against the law and many believers were in prison at that very moment because they had been caught secretly teaching young people about christianity And the only 13 at the time, I have never forgotten the terrible stories Wormbron told of prisoners branded by red-hot irons or hung upside down from a pole while their feet were beaten into a bloody mass or locked into narrow closets with metal spikes in the walls. For religious prisoners, there were special tortures. Wormbron told of pastors forced to give the Lord's table in the form of urine and feces. He himself endured the worst trial of all, three years in solitary confinement in a cell 30 feet underground, and I'm sure he could relate to Jeremiah's suffering as he was dropped into a pit and a cistern and left for dead. Casting my mind back to these memories, I could understand why Wurmbrand's testimony had worked so strongly upon Tony's heart. The Romanian pastor's message carried authenticity and conviction because he had suffered and had come through it with a new spirit. His character was a testimony to the biblical principle that suffering is the crucible that tests the quality of a person's faith. We suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him, Paul writes. We as Western Christians like to jump ahead to the second half of the verse to the assurance that we will share in His glory, but spiritual growth doesn't work that way. Genuine sanctification begins with suffering and dying with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Notice the order again. When we have faced trials so severe that we are crucified spiritually to this world, can Christ truly give us resurrection life. How did Jeremiah respond to his pain and to his suffering? We find the answer in chapter 3 verses 19 to 21. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind And therefore, I have hope. I say this with all my heart. This isn't trivial. I don't say this because I'm the worship pastor. And it's my job. But Jeremiah responded by praising and worshiping God. His personal praise and worship of God gave him hope. It gave him hope because as he worshipped and praised God, it reminded him of God's character, reminded him of the many ways God had been at work in his life, protecting him, rescuing him, encouraging him, and strengthening him. And not only himself, but of all God's people. And then he writes at the center of the book, the point of the book, and the most important words of the book of Lamentations. Words that we are very familiar with. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for Him. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. He responds with worship and prayer. And then he closes his book in chapter 5 by praying for his nation and praying for his people. And by doing so, he he is sending a message and teaching a lesson to his generation and to all future generations and to you and to me today don 't wait until the city lies in ruins to pray for her don 't wait until the nation has so completely turned its back on God that God has turned its back on it don 't wait until your city is destroyed and your homes are destroyed and, your, and and your your family is imprisoned and the church is underground before we pray for the nation. If God did not protect His own chosen people, what makes us think He will protect us if we turn our backs on the Lord as a nation? We are not as strong. We are not as all-powerful as we think we are. And without the Lord, my dear friends and loved ones, we are nothing. we are nothing. If there's ever a time that we needed to pray for our nation, brothers and sisters in Christ, now is the time uh, I'm going to close this in a word with prayer, a word of prayer, and then just and then dismiss you. We'll be done for the morning. Father, We come before you, reminded of jeremiah's pain and his suffering, his agony, his weeping, not only for the personal pain that he experienced, but the pain that came out of love for his people and for his country. And for the pain and suffering of those he loved around him. Lord, we lift our country up before you this morning on this 4th of July weekend holiday as we celebrate our great nation and the many, many blessings that You have bestowed upon us, Lord. We acknowledge that they come from You and that whatever greatness this nation possesses, it comes from You and You alone. And so we we humble ourselves, Lord, before You. We confess that far too often we have turned our backs on You and we have gone our own ways. Please forgive us for that, Lord. Strengthen Your people. Strengthen Your church. That we, like Richard Wormbrandt, like Jeremiah, like the Apostle Paul and so many believers that have gone before us and who live amongst us can be salt and light and a city on a hill and a light in the darkness. We ask and pray it in your precious name and all God's people said, Amen.